Section twenty nine of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Florentine Notes One. Yesterday, that languid organism known as the Florentine Carnival put on a momentary semblance of vigour and decreed a general corso through the town. The spectacle was not brilliant but it suggested some natural reflections. I encountered the line of carriages in the square before Santa Croce, of which they were making the circuit. They rolled solemnly by with their inmates frowning forth at each other in apparent wrath at not finding each other more worthwhile. There were no masks, no costumes, no decorations, no throwing of flowers or sweetmeats. It was as if each carriageful had privately, and not very heroically, resolved not to be at costs, and was rather discomforted at finding that it was getting no better entertainment than it gave. The middle of the piazza was filled with little tables with shouting mountebanks, mostly disguised in battered bonnets and crinolines, offering chances in raffles for plucked fowls and kerosene lamps. I have never thought the huge marble statue of Dante, which overlooks the scene, a work of the last refinement, but as it stood there on its high pedestal, chin in hand, frowning down on all this cheap foolery, seemed to have a great moral intention. The carriages followed a prescribed course through Via Ghibellina, Via del Proconsolo, past the Badia and the Bargello, beneath the great tessellated cliffs of the cathedral, through Via Tornabuoni and out into ten minutes' sunshine beside the Arno. Much of all this is the gravest and stateliest part of Florence, a quarter of supreme dignity, and there was an almost ludicrous incongruity in seeing pleasure leading her train through these dusky historic streets. It was most uncomfortably cold, and in the absence of masks, many a fair nose was fantastically tipped with purple. But as the carriages swept solemnly along, they seemed to give a funeral march, to follow an antique custom and exploded faith to its tomb. The carnival is dead, and these good people who had come abroad to make merry were funeral mutes and gravediggers. Last winter in Rome it showed but a galvanised life, yet compared with this humble exhibition it was operatic. At Rome indeed it was too operatic. The knights on horseback there were a bevy of circus riders, and I'm sure half the mad revellers repaired every night to the Capitol for their Twelve sous a day. I have just been reading over the letters of the Président de Brosse. A hundred years ago in Venice, the carnival lasted six months, and at Rome, for many weeks each year, one was free under cover of a mask to perpetrate the most fantastic follies and cultivate the most remunerative vices. It's very well to read the President's notes, which have indeed a singular interest, 
but they make us ask ourselves why we should expect the Italians to persist in manners and practices which we ourselves, if we had responsibilities in the matter, should find intolerable. The Florentines, at any rate, spend no more money nor faith on the carnivalesque, and yet this truth has a qualification. For what struck me in the whole spectacle yesterday and prompted these observations was not at all the more or less of costume of the occupants of the carriages, but the obstinate survival of the merrymaking instinct in the people at large. There could be no better example of it than that so dim a shadow of entertainment should keep all Florence standing and strolling densely packed for hours in the cold streets. There was nothing to see that mightn't be seen on the Cascina any fine day in the year. Nothing but a name, a tradition, a pretext for sweet, staring idleness. The faculty of making much of common things and converting small occasions into great pleasures is to a son of communities strenuous as ours are strenuous, the most salient characteristic of the so-called Latin civilizations. It charms him and vexes him, according to his mood, and for the most part it represents a moral gulf between his own temperamental and indeed spiritual sense of race and that of a Frenchman and Italians, far wider than the watery leagues that a steamer may annihilate, but I think his mood is wisest when he accepts the, quote, foreign, end quote, easy surrender to all the senses as the sign of an unconscious philosophy of life, instilled by the experience of centuries, the philosophy of people who have lived long and much, who have discovered no shortcuts to happiness and no effective circumvention of effort and so have come to regard the average lot as a ponderous fact that absolutely calls for a certain amount of sitting on the lighter tray of the scales. Florence yesterday, then, took its holiday in a natural, placid fashion that seemed to make its own temper an affair quite independent of the splendour of the compensation decreed on a higher line to the weariness of its legs. That the Corso was stupid or lively was the shame or the glory of the powers above, the fates, the gods, the forestieri, the town councilmen, the rich or the stingy. Common Florence on the narrow footways, pressed against the houses, obeyed a natural need in looking about complacently, patiently, gently, never pushing, nor trampling, nor swearing, nor staggering. This liberal margin for festivals in Italy gives the masses a more than man-of-the-world urbanity in taking their pleasure. Meanwhile, it occurs to me that by a remote New England fireside, an unsophisticated young person of either sex is reading in an old volume of travels or an old romantic tale, some account of these anniversaries and appointed revels as old Catholic lands offered them to view. Across the page swims a vision of sculptured palace fronts draped in crimson and gold, 
and shining in a southern sun, of a motley train of maskers sweeping on in voluptuous confusion and pelting each other with nosegays and love letters. Into the quiet room, quenching the rhythm of the Connecticut clock, floats an uproar of delighted voices, a medley of stirring foreign sounds, an echo of far-heard music of a strangely alien cadence. But the dusk is falling, and the unsophisticated young person closes the book wearily and wanders to the window. The dusk is falling on the beaten snow. Down the road is a white wooden meeting-house, looking grey among the drifts. The young person surveys the prospect a while, and then wanders back and stares at the fire. The Carnival of Venice, of Florence, of Rome. Colour and costume, romance and rapture. The young person gazes into the firelight at the flickering chiaroscuro of the future, discerns at last the glowing phantasm of opportunity, and determines with a wild heartbeat to go and see it all. Twenty years hence. Two. A couple of days since, driving to Fiesole, we came back by the castle of Vinciliata. The afternoon was lovely, and though there is as yet, February the 10th, no visible revival of vegetation, the air was full of a vague vernal perfume, and the warm colours of the hills and the yellow western sunlight flooding the plain seemed to contain the promise of nature's return to grace. It's true that above the distant pale blue gorge of Vallombrosa the mountain line was tipped with snow, but the liberated soul of spring was nevertheless at large. The view from Fiesade seems vaster and richer with each visit. The hollow in which Florence lies, and which from below seems deep and contracted, opens out into an immense and generous valley, and leads away the eye into a hundred gradations of distance. The place itself showed amid its chequered fields and gardens, with as many towers and spires as a chessboard, half cleared. The domes and towers were washed over with a faint blue mist. The scattered columns of smoke, interfused with the sinking sunlight, hang over them like streamers and pennons of silver gauze. And the Arno, twisting and curling and glittering here and there, was a serpent, cross-striped with silver. Vinciliata is a product of the millions the leisure and the eccentricity, I suppose people say, of an English gentleman, Mr. Temple Leader. His name should be commemorated. You reach the castle from Biesede by a narrow road returning toward Florence by a romantic twist through the hills and passing nothing on its way save thin plantations of cypress and cedar. Upward of twenty years ago, I believe, this gentleman took a fancy to the crumbling shell of a medieval fortress on a breezy hilltop overlooking the Val d'Arno and forthwith bought it and began to, quote, restore, unquote it. I know nothing of what the original ruin may have cost, but 
in the dusky courts and chambers of the present elaborate structure this impassioned archaeologist must have buried a fortune he has however the compensation of feeling that he has erected a monument which if it is never to stand a feudal siege may encounter at least some critical overhauling it is a disinterested work of art and really a triumph of aesthetic culture the author has reproduced with minute accuracy a sturdy home fortress of the fourteenth century and has kept throughout such rigid terms with his model that the result is literally uninhabitable to degenerate moderns it is simply a mass of facsimile an elegant museum of archaic images mainly but most amusingly counterfeit perched on a spur of the apennines the place is most politely shown there is a charming cloister painted with extremely clever quote, quaint unquote, frescoes celebrating the deeds of the founders of the castle a cloister that is everything delightful a cloister should be except truly venerable and employable there is a beautiful castle court with an embattled tower climbing into the blue far above it and a spacious lodger with rugged medallions and mild-hued Luca della Robbia's fastened unevenly into the walls. But the apartments are the great success, and each of them as good a reconstruction as a tale of Walter Scott, or, to speak frankly, a much better one. They are all low-beamed and vaulted, stone-paved, decorated in grave colours and lighted from narrow, deeply recessed windows through small, leaden-ringed plates of opaque glass. The details are infinitely ingenious and elaborately grim, and the indoor atmosphere of medievalism most forcibly revived. No compromising fact of domiciliary darkness and cold is spared us no producing condition of medieval manners not glanced at there are oaken benches round the room of about six inches in depth and gaunt fauteuils of wrought leather illustrating the suppressed transitions which as george eliot says unite all contrasts offering a visible link between the modern conceptions of torture and of luxury there are fireplaces nowhere but in the kitchen where a couple of sentry boxes are inserted on either side of the great hooded chimney-piece into which people might creep and take their turn at being toasted and smoked one may doubt whether this dearth of the hearthstone could have raged on such a scale but it's a happy stroke in the representation of an italian dwelling of any period it shows how the graceful fiction that Italy is all meridional flourished for some time before being refuted by grumbling tourists. And yet amid this cold comfort, you feel the incongruous present of a constant intuitive regard for beauty. The shapely spring of the vaulted ceilings, the richly figured walls, coarse and hard in substance as they are, the charming shapes of the great plattice and flagons in the deep recesses of the quaintly carved black dresses. The wandering hand of ornament, as it were, 
playing here and there for its own diversion in unlighted corners. Such things redress to our fond credulity with all sorts of grace, the balance of the picture. And yet somehow, with what dim, unillumined vision, one fancies even such inmates as those conscious of finer needs than the mere supply of blows and beef and beer would meet passing their heavy eyes over such slender household beguilements. These crepuscular chambers of Vinciliata are a mystery and a challenge. They seem the mere propounding of an answerless riddle. You long as you wander through them, turning up your coat collar, and wondering whether ghosts can catch bronchitis, to answer it with some positive notion of what people so encaged and situated did, how they looked and talked and carried themselves, how they took their pains and pleasures, how they counted off the hours. Deadly ennui seems to ooze out of the stones and hang in clouds in the brown corners. No wonder men relished a fight and panted for a fray. Skull smashes were sweet, ears ringing with pain and ribs cracking in a tussle with soothing music compared with the cruel quietitude of the dim-windowed castle. When they came back, they could only have slept a good deal and eased their dislocated bones on those meagre oaken ledges. Then they woke up, and turned about to the table, and ate their portion of roasted sheep. They shouted at each other across the board, and flung the wooden plates at the serving men. They jostled and hustled and hooted and bragged. Then, after gorging and boozing and easing their doublets, they squared their elbows one by one on the greasy table, and buried their scarred foreheads and dreamed of a good gallop after flying foes. And the women? They must have been strangely simple, simpler far than any moral archaeologist can show us in a learned restoration. Of course, their simplicity had its graces and devices, but one thinks with a sigh that, as the poor things turned away with patient looks from the viewless windows, to the same, same looming figures on the dusky walls, they hadn't even the consolation of knowing that just this attitude and movement, set off by their peaked quaffs, their falling sleeves, and heavily twisted trains, would sow the seed of yearning envy of sorts on the part of later generations. There are moods in which one feels the impulse to enter a tacit protest against too gross an appetite for pure aesthetics in this starving and sinning world, one turns half away musingly from certain beautiful, useless things. But the healthier state of mind, surely, is to lay no tax on any really intelligent manifestation of the curious and exquisite, Intelligence hangs together, essentially, all along the line. It only needs time to make, as we say, its connections. 
the massive pastiche of Vinciliata has no superficial use, but even if it were less complete, less successful, less brilliant, I should feel a reflective kindness for it. So disinterested and expensive a toy is its own justification. It belongs to the heroics of dilettantism. End of section 29